after that first production run and after that first winter, I realized very quickly how painful a seasonal business can be. Hey, my name is Felix Tia. I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn the most valuable activities when starting a business on the side, why this company never makes their emails look like emails from big companies or brands, and how they are shifting from a highly seasonal business into a more consistent year-long business model. Before the show, I wanted to chat about Exchange Marketplace. It's Shopify's marketplace to buy and sell businesses. In addition to browsing businesses that are up for sale, you can now gift a business to an aspiring entrepreneur in your life for as little as $50. Visit exchangemarketplace.com slash categories slash gift dash a dash business for more information, or you can go to the show notes to get the link as well. Today, I'm joined by Kurt Nichols from Glade Optics. Glade Optics builds premium goggles and helmets for committed skiers and snowboarders and was started in 2016 and based out of Breckenridge, Colorado. Welcome, Kurt. Yeah, thanks, Felix. Happy to be here. Yeah, so you had mentioned to us uh, that you had started this business as a side project. So tell us more about that. Like, What was the idea behind the business to begin with when it was a side project? Yeah, for sure. So... Back in 2016, I was pretty fresh out of college. Um, I was working... Um, at a market research firm and was very much sort of headed down the traditional corporate path. Um, I was working on a team that was helping uh, consumer facing companies um, sort of navigate um, moving from being more traditionally brick and mortar oriented um, onto uh, sort of more digital platforms. So at my at the at, at this job, my job was really sort of to help a lot of these high level decision makers sort of figure out their go to market strategy, their um, their branding and their advertising copy as they tried to navigate this what we at the time are calling the new consumer economy. So I was exposed to a lot of high level decision makers within the the retail space and within the commerce space. Um, and at that time in my life, I was very much, I guess we could call a recreational skier. You know, I skied five to 10 days a year. It was something I did um, living in Boston. You know, we'd go on weekend trips with uh, my buddies or my family and things like that. But skiing was by by no means a big part of my identity. However, um, I knew enough about skiing to understand how the industry was changing. And through my experience at my job in this market research firm, um, it was pretty clear to me that a lot of these changes were happening faster in other categories. So I was sort of able to marry the the knowledge and the expertise that I was gaining uh, in this market research position with my uh, high level knowledge of the ski market and in particular in the category of goggles and helmets. So um, the the brand started very much as a side project. I was really sort of more looking for a creative outlet than anything else. You know, I think like most people in an entry level job right out of college, it can get um, fairly uh, monotonous, you know, you're not exactly doing um, super high level stuff at that age. You know, I was 24 at the time. So I was, I was really just sort of looking to, to flex my creative muscles and to, um, you know, just have something to do um, when I wasn't at my nine to five job. So when, when the idea first came to me, um, my feeling was sort of like, okay, if I start this as a side project, um, you know, my goals for this are really uh, mostly just to to learn. Um, I was really curious about 
um, business and commerce in general and sort of the, the, the meeting of commerce and media as, as well. So I, I viewed it as more of an exercise to, um, to, to gain some knowledge and some experience, um, thinking that it, it might help me with my career or it might help me um, in ventures down the road. So, you know, I never really envisioned it to be the business that it ha has become. Um, obviously, it's grown um, to where it is today. But at the time, it was just sort of like, you know, what, what can I do that would be sort of a nice creative outlet in my in my spare time? Got it. So you mentioned that you're exposed to these high-level decision makers, and this is obviously very valuable insight, especially this early on in your career, to how these bigger brands and companies operate. What were some of the nuggets that you took from that experience that you were then able to apply in, in your business? Yeah, I think my biggest takeaway at the time and when I was first starting out was really, really honing in on who your customer is, who you are really trying to get after at at a super granular, granular level. Um, I think the issue with a lot of these brands that we were working with was the fact that they traditionally were sort of mass market companies, right? So if you think about someone like Procter & Gamble or, you know, any of the bigger conglomerates that are selling uh, mass market products, their products are designed to, to go after the biggest group of people that they can possibly get because they were advertising on uh, places like uh, broadcast television. So, what was happening is that, you know, sort of as the internet and as commerce on the internet really started exploding, people were realizing, oh man, you know, we now have the ability to target really niche groups of people. So the nuggets that I was taking away from these conversations was um, really how much these guys were focusing on trying to uh, change their messaging and change their branding to attract more niche audiences. So that to me was a huge signal of you know, hey, I, I bet this is happening in in basically every other category that's consumer facing right now. I wonder if I can apply this to something that I have knowledge on. Mm. So you had mentioned that when you first started this, you're just looking for a creative outlet. How much time were you spending on it when you weren't working at the the, the day job? I, it was a lot for sure. Um, I think in the early days, you know, trying to figure out how to bring a product to market and trying to figure out how to um, generate demand and make sure that the actual product was up to snuff in terms of like quality and features. It, it took a ton of effort, you know, um, but it's one of those things that was sort of a labor of love for me in the beginning. It was, it was very exciting. Um, but I, I was certainly spending, um, most nights and most weekends working on it. What would you say back then were the best uses of your time for anyone else out there that might be kind of moonlighting and starting a business too? What did you find looking back were the best uses of your time during the, the, the nights and weekends that you did have? Almost certainly sourcing a high quality product. That to me was paramount at the time. And looking back on it, I think it was by far the most important thing I spent my time on. Um, I have always been sort of of the belief that um, the best marketing you can have is having a really good product. So in those early days, I was spending I was spending the vast, vast majority of my time trying to figure out how to bring a high quality product to market. And what that looked like in practice was um, basically just trying to understand the landscape of manufacturers and suppliers um, for this ski goggle product that I wanted to create. Um, it was a lot of sort of Google searching and phone calls and um, buying competitors' products and trying to figure out who who was building their products and things like that. And um, that process took me a long time. You know, the the landscape of manufacturers that were making ski goggles at the time, there was probably 25 or 30 different factories that I identified that were able to do it. And I'm sure there was even more that I didn't see. So the majority of my time in the beginning was spent sort of vetting these factories. Um, you know, I... 
I contacted each of these factories either via email or phone call or Skype or however I could contact them, um, trying to figure out a, would they even consider working with me at, at low volumes and B were they able to understand sort of what I was trying to create, what product modifications I could make and, um, and then see, were they able to sort of take my vision and then communicate it effectively? Um, you know, whether, what, whether that meant, uh, working around my hours or just sort of understanding what I was trying to do and having, having a good conversation about it. So from that initial list of like 25 or 30 factories, it was pretty clear that only about half of them were even willing to work with me just because my first production run um, back in 2016, when I was trying to validate the idea, I was trying to make the production run as small as possible, right? Because I didn't want to, I didn't want to spend a ton of money if the idea wasn't going to work. So there was probably only 10 to 15 factories that were even willing to make a production run of 300 or 400 goggles, whatever it was. Um, so that whittled the group down almost immediately. And then I had more in-depth conversations with each, with each of those suppliers, basically explaining my vision, explaining the product features that I wanted. And um, from there, I would say probably five or six factories were even willing to, to make those changes and modifications to the product. Um, and then I had each of those factories send me a set of samples. So the way that the goggle industry worked at the time was basically like these guys were contracted out by other brands um, and they had open molds from from goggles from many, many years ago. So I basically said, hey, send me send me your product. I want to test it out. And then I skied with those goggles for almost an entire year trying to figure out um, which which of these factories I thought was making the highest quality product. Um, so that was really the majority of my time in in the early days. I think I focused very little on things like marketing and branding, um, sort of, I think to my detriment, I think it would have been smarter for me to figure out, okay, how am I going to generate demand? But I am very happy that I spent so much time trying to vet the the product quality, because at the end of the day, I'm still using that same supplier to, to build our goggles. Um, and they've been an amazing partner all the way through. Does that mean that you would have chosen a different path or do you find that the path you took was like the better kind of long-term approach? I think it was, a, it's a good long-term approach to make sure that your product quality is dialed. I think I neglected to fully think through sort of the launch phase of things. I, I made the mistake that I think a lot of entrepreneurs probably make, which is sort of the idea that, oh, if I build it, they will come. Right. Um, so I had spent all this time trying to dial in the product, um, got it to where I felt like it was a high quality product and I could bring it to market. And then I built the website and just sort of sat there like, oh, yeah, there's this whole other component of this business where I actually have to generate demand. Um, thankfully, the product quality was high enough that that, that um, word of mouth sort of started spreading and we were getting some features and some publications and things like that. However, I would certainly recommend um, sort of balancing that that product sourcing and product quality component with um, a, a healthy dose of trying to figure out how you're going to generate demand. That makes sense. So, so it sounds like the the payoff from the investment that you made in making sure you had a, a superior product was the word of mouth and referrals and reviews. But that can only come after you actually have a launch and have some existing customers first, which is something that you had encountered kind of late in the game where you realized, wait a second, I actually have to try to get some demand first. I want to get to that in a second. Now, when you're talking, when you're talking about trying to understand the landscape of manufacturers and making sure that you pick the right one. What were these modifications that you were talking, what that you're talking about? What makes your specific product um, special above the, comp the competitors? So I, I had a vision for sort of the aesthetic look of the goggle. Um, I, 
so an interesting part about our specific category is there's not a whole lot of room for differentiation. Um, the the Glade product, or I'm sorry, the ski goggle product has been largely commoditized. So when I'm talking about sort of the features and the, the modifications that I wanted to our particular goggle, I wanted it to look unique. I wanted it to be something that when someone saw it out on the chairlift or they saw it in the in the out on the slopes or anything like that or on an Instagram post, that the goggle would be uniquely Glade. Um, that was of primary importance to me. And so that was what um, sort of took up a lot of that time was figuring out how do we create something that's unique, but that is also familiar enough that um, it's not too far afield that people will be sort of afraid to buy a, a, a new product from a new brand. Got it. So clearly it's going to be a, a divergence, at least a bit from what the, the these manufacturers are typically creating. So how difficult was that process of explaining the product features and the, the adjustments that you wanted to make? It, it was it was more difficult than I anticipated, I would say. Um, a lot of uh, ski goggles and helmets on the market out there right now are what I guess you could call open mold goggles, which basically means there's no patent on the goggle. Um, it's Anyone can make it. it. It's sort of like a plug and play type thing. Um, so t- in order to make the modifications, it was cer- it was a question that I think a lot of these factories had not been asked before. Um, but again, that was sort of part of the vetting process. Some were just willing to work with me. Um, I think at that time, there was probably not a whole lot of people thinking about doing what I was doing. Um, I think if I had tried to do that today, I probably would have gotten a lot more no's than I did at the time. Got it. Now, these 300 to 400 goggles, that's, that's pretty much as low as you can get for, for a production yeah. run. Were there any stipulations, like any tips for anyone else, out, anyone else out there that doesn't have much to invest or doesn't want to take too big of a risk yet, but does need some products to begin with? Like, How do you negotiate something like this? Yeah, I think the way that I, I negotiated was basically saying, hey, I, I, I was just very truthful with the suppliers. I said, hey, I have this vision for the brand. I have a vision for what I want to do. Um, we're starting out small and we're testing the market. Um, you know, I'd love to do a really small production run. And the way that we were able to negotiate that with the suppliers or the way I was able to negotiate with the suppliers was basically saying, I'm not going to ask you to do that much. That's any different than what you're already doing. You know, I, I have an idea for like the color that I want and, um, some specific features, but I'm not asking you to reinvent the wheel. This is not a highly complex product. We're not doing any new tooling. We're not doing any new kidding, um, nothing like that. Um, basically, it was just a conversation of like, hey, when you're done making goggles for the the big guys in the industry, you know, throw on an extra hundred and make these changes to it and then let's go from there. Got it. Okay. Now, that, that sounds like a pretty... I guess keen insight into how these manufacturers were creating, how how they run the operate from the inside, knowing something like that they could just use a, a mold or use the, yeah. the, the the setup that they already had. How did you learn this? A, a lot of research and a lot of conversations with these guys. Um, you know, I think the the reason that Glade has been successful is largely because our differentiation is predicated upon branding and distribution and pricing and the way that we, you know, sort of communicate with our customers. So when, when I was going to these factories and trying to figure out what the landscape looked like and how they were, um, how they were working with sort of the, the bigger incumbent brands, they were pretty open with me. You know, I, I was just asking them point blank, like, you know, do, do incumbent brands own their molds? What does the process look like? Things like that. And 
this was all sort of part of the process. You know, I think the reason that I kept moving forward with the idea in the beginning was because of what I learned about the manufacturing process. You know, I learned that there are very few patents in the industry and there are a ton of open molds and that the product features and feature sets are largely commoditized. So I think that was sort of all part of the vetting process in the early days. Got it. Now let's talk about this, what happened after you got this production running 300 to 400 goggles. You had mentioned that you didn't really think about like, how do you actually launch this? What, what, what did you do once you got them? You got them, I'm assuming, shipped to your, your, your home. What were the next steps for you to determine how to actually sell these? <laughs> yeah, so I was living in an apartment in Boston. And for anybody who's ever lived in Boston, you know that apartments aren't very big there. They're very old and they're very small. So I had... I had the initial production run of, you know, a couple hundred goggles sent straight to my apartment. So I had a bunch of cartons of ski goggles sitting in a closet, which my roommates were were thrilled about at the time. Um, but my my next plan was really just to the, the idea was, OK, you know, I, I know that product photography is really important and I know that um, there is opportunity in this category for sort of a, a, a new brand voice. Um, so I built the website myself, you know you can do this now with Shopify at the time I, this was 2016. So I, you know, I think I spent like a hundred bucks to build the website myself. Um, I, I hired a photographer for like 200 bucks or something crazy cheap and said, Hey, I need some products on white photography. And, um, just went from there. We had zero lifestyle photography. Actually, when I go back and look at the website, I sort of cringe because I do have an archive of it. Um, but you know, the, the copy that I had on the website, I think was unique enough that it, it was catching some people's eyes. So I built the website, um, was sort of all ready to go and then realized I didn't have a, a really sort of any sophisticated demand generation strategy. And what ended up working really well for me and working in my favor is that, um, Instagram and Facebook at the time, there was a ton of opportunity for arbitrage. So I was able to create an Instagram account and sort of you know, at the time when I was posting things, it was actually being seen by our followers, which was really helpful. So the early days, um, digital advertising certainly um, was a big help in sort of spurring demand. The other thing is that the the ski goggle product itself was sort of inherently shareable. So I obviously had a network of like friends and families and colleagues that were supporting me and probably ordered the first whatever, call it 40 to 50 pairs of goggles. And then as they were going skiing, um, they were posting pictures. And when you're posting pictures of yourself skiing, goggles are usually the, the primary focus of the photo, as well as the fact that skiers skiing is sort of inherently a social sport. So, you know, if you're on the chairlift um, or going skiing with a group, um, skiers are very much kind of obsessed with new gear. So I think I was very fortunate in the sense that the product did have that sort of inherently, I wouldn't call it viral, but maybe shareable component to it. Um, so it wasn't super hard for me to sell a couple hundred of them, um, especially given the fact that to pay for digital advertising at the time was super cheap. Um, so it was not a sophisticated strategy to answer your question. It was basically like friends and family, word of mouth, and a, a small smattering of digital ads. Got it. So then maybe what about what, what happened next? Like once you sold out that first production run, like what, how large is the next run? How did you just kind of scale up your approach to sell a larger batch? Yeah, I, I bootstrapped it myself for the first few years. And after that first production run and after that first winter, I realized very quickly how painful a seasonal business can be. After like March 15th, the demand for anything ski related just drops off a cliff. So I ended that season after selling those first, you know, 100 pair, 200 pairs of goggles, whatever it was, 
Um, and then was sitting on more cash than I was sitting on in the beginning of the season and sort of like, okay, sweet, that worked. Like, let's, let's double down. Um, let's, let's put all this cash into a new round of inventory. Um, you know, o- only to realize that, oh yeah, I'm not going to be able to make any revenue until October or November of next year. So wh- what I learned sort of in those early days is that it was slow going, right? Like I, I was basically, I took the cash that I-, I made in profit from the first season. I plowed all of that into inventory for the next season and basically just repeated that for the first two or three seasons. Um, yeah, I'm, I was fortunate that goggles are an extremely high margin product. So I was able to grow, uh, you know, in those early days, probably 200 to 400% year over year, which when you're at small volumes, obviously doesn't mean much, but it, it does mean much. It means a lot in the sense that, um, you're able to survive and you're able to keep going. Um, so that was sort of how the first few years netted out was me sort of hedging my risk still, you know, I was still working full time and I was not putting, I didn't have any money to my name. I was, you know, 25. Like I didn't have that. I, I, all my savings had gone into the first production run. So um, I was really just sort of playing with house money at that point. And my thought process was, okay, if I if I can find a sustainable way to to keep people coming to the website and to keep people purchasing year over year, I think it's worth a shot. Mm. At what time? At what point did it become a full time pursuit? Um, that was probably two, two and a half years after I started. And I, I probably could have gotten full-time before that. I will say I'm a pretty risk averse person. So I was not, I was pretty unwilling to make the leap until I felt financially secure, um, in, in the business. And I felt like I had a sustainable and repeatable way to grow the business, um, as well as making sure that those methods were diversified. Um, so as someone who's pretty risk averse, I was, very cognizant of the fact that I did not want to be overly reliant on one particular method of acquiring customers or anything like that. I, I just, I wanted to make sure that I was hedging my bets in that respect. Yeah. I certainly think that it's a, it's a mindset for a lot of people that are, that are starting businesses and these two factors of the sustainable repeatable ways that are not just dependent on one source to acquire customers makes total sense. You also mentioned being able to be financially secure, which is going to be different for different people. What yep. was that for you? Was it a certain number of savings or certain cash flow? Like what was it that made you feel safe to make the jump? Well, I was young and I didn't have any kids and I didn't have a mortgage. Um, so I think my threshold for that was, was probably a lot more basic than other people's. My, my plan was basically if I can survive, you know, if I can pay rent, if I can, um, sort of transition from my corporate day job into doing Glade full time without a, a loss in, I, I guess, like sort of, um, in my lifestyle and I could sort of continue on as things were going. Um, that for me was really the uh, the decision point, just because you know I didn't have any dependents. I was young, and I think that that benefited me, benefited me in a lot of ways, just because I I had very little to lose at the time. Mm-hmm. Now, the sustainable and repeatable ways to acquire customers. What did that look like for you? What were different methods that you had laid out that made you feel safe? That hey, if one of these fails, you still got a couple other ways to acquire customers. Yeah. So I I spoke a little bit about, um, sort of the the digital advertising ecosystem that was big for us in the early days, um, because the arbitrage opportunities were huge. Um, so that was driving a fair amount of sales for us. Um, I also, um, was, was leaning really heavily into email and and I still do this to this day. I, I love email as a marketing channel. I think 
anytime you have a channel like that, that you, you own the relationship with the customer and you're not reliant on a, a third party to get your message out is, is always beneficial. So, um, email, I would, I would really strongly encourage anybody out there to start building their, building their list and, and getting really sort of serious about that because to this day, email drives about 25 to 30% of our revenue. Um, so, so that was one channel that was sort of a, an easy early win for us. Um, I also was really, really willing to experiment with a bunch of stuff. So in those days, you know, I, I was willing to, to try out podcast advertising or, um, trying to develop, uh, partnerships with, uh, like ski clubs or ski teams or ski trip organizers. Um, I was not afraid to do things that didn't scale. Um, you know, I was, I was totally willing to email 50 ski clubs and say, Hey, you know, here's who we are, here's the discount code, et cetera. And we still have relationships with some of those clubs to this day. Um, so it was stuff like that as well as, you know, I was, I was going to like beer festivals and craft fairs in ski towns throughout the winter. Um, and some of those, uh, we did zero sales, you know, it was, it was me and my wife sitting in a tent in the cold and we would sell nothing, but, but other times, you know, we'd have days that were, you know, one, two, three thousand $3,000, which at the time was like, really, really validating. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of marketing mix and, and how I thought about it in the early days, I think Glade benefited pretty tremendously from, from a willingness to just throw stuff against the wall and see what stuck because some of the stuff that worked was, was really surprising. And some of the stuff that didn't work, I thought would work really well. Like we have never, never been able to really get an effective affiliate program or an effective referral program off the ground. And I, in the beginning, was really thinking that those would be really viable channels for us. But for whatever reason, it just hasn't worked. Mm, so a couple questions there. The first one is you mentioned that you were really willing to do things that didn't scale. What was the thought process behind that, that kind of mindset? My feeling is, and I still have this feeling, I'm still willing to do stuff that doesn't scale, is that especially in the early days, it's just really important to get your product out in the market because a, you need feedback on the product and you need feedback on how you're selling it. Um, so yes, it took me a lot of time to like email those ski clubs and trip organizers and things like that. But if, if I sold 10 goggles to a, to a ski club, that was a win for me because those 10 people, maybe one of them would come back and give me some feedback on, um, you know, some feature of the product or, or some other sort of, uh, ski related nuance that I was not aware of. So, um, my, my feeling is we are probably still benefiting from the, those early unscalable actions just because if, if we got 10 ski goggles out there and five of those people tell their buddy on the chairlift about Glade and um, that, that creates two new customers for us, I think that marketing flywheel is really, really effective. Um, so I, I would certainly encourage people to, to not just sort of discard an idea because it's not scalable. I think in the early days, those were our biggest wins because you need, you need feedback, right? In the early days, you, it's just so important. Um, to this day, I, the way that I talk about Glade is more or less an amalgamation of everything any customer has ever said to me about the brand, just because of how important that feedback has been, you know, uh, something that we've doubled and tripled down on over the years is the fact that our goggles are anti-fog. And when we started, I never would have thought that would have been that important to people. I, I would have thought it's just another feature, but through going to those craft fairs and beer festivals and through, um, talking to ski clubs, you know, that's something that it, it was pretty evident early on that people cared about. 
Now, you mentioned that you weren't afraid to also experiment with different channels. I think there's a kind of a spectrum here where someone might be hyper-focused on just one channel or one, one way to acquire customers. And then there's the other kind of other end of the spectrum where it's a shiny object syndrome where you're jumping from one thing to the yeah. next. How do you, how, for you, how do you know when you've given enough time on an experiment to make the call on whether it's worth uh, you know, reinvesting back into it or pulling out completely? Yeah, I think unfortunately this answer, it's not binary. You know, it's very rarely clear that something's either really working or really not working. I think the vast, vast majority of things that at least I have done um, in the marketing space has been somewhere in that gray area. Um, I have always been pretty hyper-focused on first purchase profitability as well as um, ROI on a channel. So if we're putting significant resources towards towards a specific channel and we're not seeing the return that is comparable to other channels that we have and that we have doubled down on, then um, we'll usually cut our losses. But again, I think you do have to you have to give each channel a fair shake, um, you know, because I think a good example of this actually is we tried we tried advertising on ski related podcasts like three years ago and we did not have success with it. Um, it, it just didn't work. We I think we tried one or two podcasts and we did not see the return that we were expecting. Um, and we totally abandoned the channel until a couple months ago when we, um, we decided, Hey, maybe we should give this another shot. And we have a podcast ad running right now. That's one of our most successful channels. So I think, you know, there's so much that goes into it in terms of like timing and resources you're putting behind it and how well known your brand is in the category. Um, which certainly helps, but my feeling about, you know, when, when you should, be sort of doubling or tripling down on um, certain channels is is unfortunately largely gut feeling. I don't have a sophisticated way of thinking about it. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to talk about email because yeah, I mentioned this is one of the most powerful and, and sustained sources of uh, acquiring uh, purchases, repurchase, repeat purchases from your customers. What does that look like for you? What does it look like for a, a customer of yours to be on your email list? What kind of emails and how often are they getting it from you? Yeah, I'm glad you asked because I think it looks totally different than most other brands out there. Um, we, we do something pretty unique uh, with our email list in that um, – we we do the traditional sort of abandoned cart, browse abandonment, all those type of flows. Those look very similar to everybody else. However, if you are on our list and you are getting campaign emails from us about, um, you know, inventory levels or um, shipping schedules or just sort of like random updates throughout the ski season, those emails come into your inbox from me directly. The, the from field says, Kurt at Glade. There's a subject line. And then the the body of the email is plain text, no photos maybe one or two hyperlinks. The email comes in basically looking like it's an email from a friend or a family member, um, anybody in your life that you would email sort of on a one-on-one basis. And the the thinking behind this is the result of a fair amount of A-B testing. So we tested, obviously, your sort of more traditional marketing emails with lots of flashy pictures and um, sales and things like that um, against these plain text emails. And what we realized is that the engagement level on these emails is so much higher. So not only are open rates higher, not only are click-through rates higher, but we actually, every time we send an email out, I get a, I get a couple hundred emails back into my inbox, people 
emailing me back as if they're a friend or a family member saying, Hey, like this is super interesting or, Hey, I have a question about the goggles, et cetera. It's a great way for me to engage with our list. It's a great way for me to develop relationships with people in our ecosystem. Um, and on top of that, ESPs actually recognize those emails as closer to, um, like friends and family emails versus emails from, from a brand. So what that means is that our emails are far more likely to be taken out of the spam box and put into the inbox. So that's why our open rates are so high in them because the ESPs are looking at the email. They're not seeing a ton of pixel data. They're not seeing a ton of pictures and they're saying, okay, this is unlikely to be spam or this is unlikely to be a promotion. Um, therefore we are putting it in the main inbox in Gmail. So, um, I would highly recommend, um, other brands at least experiment with this. It might not work for you. It works for us. Um, but we've had pretty tremendous success with it. And, and we, you know, I have developed um, a really good sense of sort of like what our customers are looking for through these emails, just because I do have such an open dialogue with them now. Mm, so these, these emails that, that look like an email from a friend or family member, what, what is the, What about the content? What is the content of the emails? What do they, what does it consist of? It's, it's really minimal. Um, it's usually three or four lines of text and then a link. Um, I, I try not to bombard the list with emails. You might get one email every two weeks, I think is probably the cadence in the, and the content of the email is, um, it's going to be timely. So what I mean by that is a, a good example of an email we just sent out is like, Hey, we're running low on this particular color goggle. If you want it, I would recommend you buy it now. Or, Hey, here's our shipping deadlines for Christmas. Um, it's always informative. It's never sort of like spammy. Um, if, if I don't have a reason to email the list, I won't email them. I, I would never send an email out. That's just sort of like, Hey, look at our product line. You know, we have welcome flows for that exact purpose. So once you've graduated beyond that welcome flow, my assumption is you're familiar with who you, who we are. I'm not going to bombard you with email unless I think I have a good reason to. Now these these welcome flows are though do those typically look like a I guess a, a typical branded email campaign or does it look like the friends and family um, I guess design or approach that you've taken? Yeah, th those look like your typical branded campaign. And the reason for that is that um, for a brand like ours that is in a space that is has been historically dominated by basically two incumbents, um, there is a a sort of base level of education and social proof that we need to get to new people um, or people that are new to our brand. So in those welcome flows, we we do a ton of uh, like social proof. So we'll put in quotes from uh, magazines that we've been published in as well as reviews from other customers just because there is a hump that we have to get over in terms of educating people about who we are and making sure that they feel comfortable purchasing from us and that we're not just um, some like you know, random drop shipping brand or something like that. Mm -hmm. Now, when you, you mentioned that the business, especially early on was a very seasonal based business. Did you make any shifts in the business to kind of level that out a bit? Yeah, we, we've struggled with this from day one. It's sort of, it's something that's top of mind for me almost 24 seven. Um, we have, we've made efforts in that respect. So what we have done is we have expanded, um, into sunglasses as well as sort of other, other accessories for um, mountain activities in the summer. Um, we are coming out with a really robust sunglass line this summer. We have we piloted one last summer that we had a lot of success with. But again, it's sort of it's hard to overcome that cognitive bias when everybody looks at your brand in a certain way. I think it's really hard to educate your customers about sort of the direction you're going in. So 
I don't have a, a like super solid answer on on how we overcome the seasonality issue. I think that we we are trying to become the the sort of mountain eyewear go to brand. That's that's the the ethos with which we are plowing ahead. Um, it, it's not clear to me how successful that would be, but based on our pilot last year with the sunglasses, I I'm pretty optimistic that we'll be able to carve out a niche um, in future seasons. Mm-hmm. Since right now the peak is still during those during those winter months, did you do you make any kind of shifts or adjustments to the business over the years to 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 specifically attack and perform better each peak season? Um, I, nothing dramatic, you know, I think our selling season is so compressed between November and February that, um, you know, we're really, I'm totally hands on deck for the next three months. You know, this is the busiest time for us, no doubt. Um, I still answer every single customer service email that comes through. So I am super, super busy at this time. Um, in terms of like how we've, how I've changed the business over, over the years, it's really been about making sure that I have enough time to do the things that make an impact on the business. So it's been, you know, about sort of outsourcing. So like, for example, in the early days, I of course was shipping out of my apartment. Um, and then as we grew, I outsourced fulfillment to a third party logistics provider. Um, you know, I, I offloaded the accounting stuff to a third party platform. Um, so really the biggest changes in preparing for peak season for us have basically just been about offloading and outsourcing things um, to make sure that I have enough time to do stuff that's impactful. Mm. So one thing you did not mention that you had mentioned to us, it was also about how outsourcing the digital marketing was a disaster. And you had mentioned yeah. now how you are very hands-on with how personalized emails are, that you're answering customer service emails. So obviously you scaled that back. So tell us more about that. Like what happened with the outsourcing of digital marketing that made you basically reverse your, your steps there? I think our main problem was sort of the fact that our incentives weren't aligned with the agency that we hired. Um, this was, I believe, two seasons ago that we were working with this particular agency. And what, what's interesting is that sort of the the payment structure that we were working on them with was basically just predicated upon spend. It was not predicated upon any type of success metric. So um, a big learning for me through that process was if you are going to hire an agency or or any kind of third party provider to help you with marketing or really anything, just make sure your incentives are aligned. I would have been been much happier if if we were paying them based on um, you know a ROAS goal or something like that instead of just a, a, a spend goal. So. Um, you know, that, that was a huge, huge learning in the early days for sure. Is it something that you would eventually outsource, feel safe to outsource again, knowing that, that, that you were to align your, your incentives better? Yes. And I think a, a lot of the learning was around the fact that, um, I frankly didn't know enough about our customer to correctly articulate to this agency, how we should be talking to them and how we should be marketing the product. So by taking, marketing and digital advertising back in-house and doing it myself, I gained a lot of personal knowledge about um, what type of copy really resonates, what type of features really resonate about our product, um, and how other how our customers are sort of speaking about it to other people. So I think it, it was important for me to take that back and gain that knowledge because now I think I would feel much more confident um, outsourcing that again. Um, with a with a better incentive structure as well as uh, the more knowledge that I have now, just because our category is so idiosyncratic. Like skier, the way that skiers talk about gear is so different than you know if you're selling like a wallet or something like that. You know, it's it's there's certain terminology you have to use. You have to use phrases and things um, to basically signal 
to other skiers that you know what you're talking about. Um, it's sort of a, a weird industry in that respect, and we totally missed that in the beginning. So there's a lot of learning uh, in that domain that I would feel far more confident going to an agency now. Yeah. What what kind of like, uh, I guess, daily practices or practices that you built in the business to make sure that you are absorbing this kind of knowledge for your own use or that, or in the future so that you can offload this to someone else? Yeah. I mean, I, I alluded to this a little bit before, but I, I think the single most important thing I do is, is answer every single customer service email myself. Um, I think that's the single best source of truth about how we are how we are doing as a brand in terms of our communication um, and and our copy as well as how we're doing in terms of our product quality and 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 how people are thinking about our product. So, what what I have done um, as as I have you know been answering these emails for years and years now is created a a document basically that that a serves as like a repository for any product features and upgrades I think we should make for follow on years as well as um, sort of standard answers to questions that we get a lot. Um, so what that in turn has helped me do is actually create a really effective frequently asked questions page. So we get the same sort of 10 questions every season. And by adding those questions onto our website, I think we've been able to cut down on the actual volume of customer service inquiries that we get. Um, but I think, I think a lot of people look at customer service and say, that's a waste of my time. Like we should hire some entry-level intern to do that. I think I, I completely disagree with that because I think a lot of the most impactful decisions that have been made from a strategy, from a strategy perspective in our business have been a, a result of me directly interfacing with our customers. Um, just because, you know, they'll be vocal about what product features they want to see change, what upgrades they want, um, what, what marketing is important to them and things like that. Awesome. So I'll talk a little bit about the website. You had mentioned that you still have an archive version of the first version of the website that makes you cringe. So tell us more about what are some of the changes that you made along the way that have had the biggest impact on on the growth of the business when it comes to things like conversion rate and getting those sales? Yeah, I think two things really jump out to me. The first is social proof. Um, we noticed a massive jump in conversion rate as we started to get logos of well-respected publications in the ski industry onto our front page. So if you look at our website right now, and you, I think the, the second thing that you see is a list of publishers that have written about us with links to those articles. Um, so what that has done is um, created a lot of sort of reassurance for people that are new to the brand. So if you go to our website for the first time and you're trying to figure out who we are and what we're about, you're going to feel a lot better about buying equipment from us if Outside Magazine has written about us, if Free Skier, Backcountry Mag, Ski Mag, Blister Gear Review. You know, when you see those type of um, uh, articles up there about us, I think it makes people a lot more comfortable purchasing from us. So that's been huge. Um, I would, I would highly recommend any any new business do this. And I know, I know it sort of seems daunting in the beginning, and certainly we ha- we don't, we did not have this for a long time. Um, but the way we thought about it was sort of like a pyramid, right? So we, we started with really low level publications, like, um, sort of local newspapers or really, uh, niche publications within the outdoor space that maybe didn't get a lot of traffic, but, but they were willing to write about a new startup. And once we got those guys to write about us, it was a little bit easier for us to go out and try to get articles by um, some of the bigger players in the industry. So I would recommend, even if it's not something like Outside Magazine, if it's like a local 
newspaper or something like that, just get the logo up there. Cause I think people want to want some third party validation. Um, and we've also added a lot of uh, customer reviews to the site as well. Um, more prominently displayed. The, the second thing that we did that really helped was, um, be much more diligent about our landing pages. So I, I frankly was not really aware that this was even something you could do until probably a year or two ago. Um, but we use an app called Shogun to design very, very customized landing pages for, um, our advertisements as well as for our product pages, as well as for like more specific, uh, feature oriented pages. And what this has allowed us to do is if we're advertising to you about a specific product feature, um, we can then have you click out into a landing page that elaborates on that specific feature. So it just makes us, um, a little more sophisticated in terms of our customer journey and making sure that the copy is really well aligned across the entire journey um, for each particular person. Um, because some some parts of the of our product are are more important to people than others, you know. And I think it's important to understand that each each persona that you have probably cares about things in a in a way that's a little bit different. So just creating those landing pages and making them really, really hyper customized has helped us a lot. Yeah, that, that sounds like um, it can be a big lift to create all that content. Like how many landing pages are we talking about? Yeah, it's it's a fairly big effort. Um, right now, we probably have somewhere between 15 and 20. However, they're very similar. Um, so we, you know, the in terms of like product photography and lifestyle photography, that's all very similar across the pages because we know the photography that converts really well. And we're, we're really sort of just tweaking the copy um, for most of these pages. Some of them are totally different, obviously, but um, even just tweaking the copy to, to highlight one feature over another or highlight one part of the business over another, I think can go a really long way because some people, some people buy from us because we're lower price than our competitors. Some people buy from us because we're an independent brand in a category where no one else is independent. And some people buy from us because um, we have a particular anti-fog system that is better than our competitors. And we want to make sure that for each of those people, we're highlighting that very clearly to them as they, uh, sort of move their way through our website. Got it. And that kind of alignment you're talking about is like, it's like between the ad and that landing page or what is it that you want to keep, what, what, what message are you looking to keep consistent through this, this funnel? Yeah, it's it's from the ad or it's from an article that was written about us or it's from, um, you know, we, we go through all of our traffic sources and we make custom landing pages for each of them uh, because we assume that depending on where that person is coming from, they have a either a different demographic makeup or a different psychographic makeup or a different reason that they're looking for a goggle because some people are just looking for a replacement for something that was old and is, has been broken. Right. And some people are not even looking for a goggle, but they want to learn more about us and they want to support us. So it's important that we're, we're sort of, we're touting that message. Yeah. I could imagine that being a, a, to me, it sounds like a stressful time where you're trying to suck it. What is the landing page that we want to put in front of them from this Mm -hmm. article or from this ad? Is that an easy thing for you to do it these days? Or how do you determine, okay, what is the right landing page to put in front of them as a next step? I, now I have a fairly decent gut feel for, for, for like the particular copy that I think will work in a given situation. However, that gut feel is the result of a lot of data and a lot of AB testing over the years. Um, I spent a lot of time trying to figure out what particular messaging resonated with people that were buying our goggles and testing a ton of different variations, um, on that copy, both 
in our advertising and on our website and on the product pages. Um, you know, I have never been afraid to experiment. And I think that that experimentation goes a really, really long way because at the end of the day, it might only change your conversion rate by like, you know, whatever, at 1% at the most, but that's huge, huge in the long run. Definitely. So you, you mentioned you use Shogun for that. Are there any other apps that you rely on to run the business? Yeah, I think um, my my favorite app personally that we use is called Product Upsell. It's by uh, Bold, I believe. And we use this um, we use this for across all of our products. So what this app does is if you add a ski goggle or a ski helmet or what, whatever the product is to our shopping cart, you get a pop-up that says, Hey, you know, we think that these other two products would really enhance your ski day. And those products are often things like a crush resistant case or an extra lens or a lens cover. Um, they're really sort of accessories that we think um, are good complements to the product that was added to the cart. And we have all this logic that determines, okay, who is this person and what did they add to the cart? Given that information, here's the type of product that we are going to recommend to them in this pop-up. And we've seen tremendous success with this. Um, our conversion rate on that pop-up is 30%. So that means that 30% of everybody that adds one product to their cart is adding another product to the cart as a result of this pop-up. So that's a huge revenue driver for us. Just like table stakes, we don't have to do anything, um, you know, just driving a ton of revenue. Um, so I, I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. I, I would recommend anybody use this sort of upsell, cross-sell type thing. Um, the other thing we do is we use um, an app called Cart Hook Post-Purchase Offer where after the after the customer has made the purchase, they've input their credit card information, they've confirmed the payment, and then you get pushed sort of to that thank you page. We then offer them another product at a discount after they've made that purchase. So if you purchase a pair of goggles, you go through the process. On that thank you page, you might get an offer that says, hey, if you want a helmet in the next five minutes, you can get 10% off that helmet. Um, we, we are seeing conversion rates of around 4% on that, which it's not huge, but again, that's revenue you would not get otherwise. So those two apps together have really contributed to, um, a pretty big boost in our AOV and our LTV, um, which ultimately is just really good for the health of the business. So I, I'm a huge fan of both of those. Awesome. So shopglade.com is a website. I'll leave this last question. What would you say is the, the biggest goal that you that you set for yourself for 2021? Well, um, we, we have been very lucky in the sense that, um, we have been relatively unimpacted by COVID up to this point. Um, as most people know, ski resort shut down last March, along with basically everything else. We were already sold out of all of our inventory at that time. So we came out of it relatively unscathed. So when I think about goals for, um, this particular winter and well, this particular ski season, um, I think what's most important for us is basically, um, hitting our revenue targets under the context of all of the resorts and all of the ski areas staying open. Um, there's a ton of uncertainty in the ski industry right now. We're seeing a ton of demand. Um, I think people want to get outside more so than ever. You know, we saw this in the bike and camping industry, et cetera. Um, so I think as long as ski resorts, uh, stay open, we will be exceeding our, our goals for the season. However, um, when I think about sort of longer term goals, it's basically let's get through, um, this winter while COVID is still, potentially going to impact us and then think about the future. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Kurt. Yeah, thanks, Felix. I appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.